Good morning. My name is Brandon, uh, one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights. As he said, we are uh, beginning a series uh, that we're calling Revival, Ordinary Grace in Extraordinary Measure. Now, I didn't, uh, I didn't grow up in the church. Uh, I was 22 and I became a Christian. In fact, I grew up in uh, what you would probably call a fairly irreligious home. Uh, we may or may not have been there on Easter, may or may not have been there on Christmas Eve, uh, but uh, in the year surrounding, it was just not a prevalent part of our life. And then in May of 2000, I met these, uh, the, these guys who introduced me to Jesus, and, I, and all of a sudden, I became a follower of, of Christ. And instantly, um, I had this set of church friends. Uh, and this new set of church friends, they would just say things that I thought, man, that's just weird. Like, that's just strange. Like, who in the world talks like that, right? Um, this whole set of walk with what, you know, it was just weird. Like, and one of the things that they said uh, was they said, my, my church is having a revival. Um, and I remember have, not having a clue what that, what that meant. Uh, and so they said it like this. They said, my, our church is having a revival from June 20th to June 24th. And so what we do is we, we bring in like the special evangelist and um, we have this really cool music and maybe a fog machine. I don't know yet. We'll find out, right? Uh, and then you bring your friends uh, and we, we invite our friends. And then like, that's how they get saved, right? And I remember without trying to offend anyone in this room, uh, I remember thinking, huh, no. Um, <laughs> Like there is my friends, like my bar hopping buddies coming to this. I don't think so. Like that is not going to happen. So I think it's pretty important that we define our terms. Um, what they were experiencing, what they were talking about has been given a label. The label is revivalism, right? It's the ism. It's the activity of trying to produce revival uh, where uh, really it's a, it's a heightened season of evangelism. Uh, and the, the truth is that this started in the 17, 1800s in America. It's where tent meetings came from. If, uh, if, you, if you have a background, any kind of camp ministry, camp ministry was born out of this as, uh, as well, right? So if you think about the teen camp that you may or may not have gone to where you got saved like six times in a week and then like twice on Friday, that, um, that, that's where this really came from. And I'm not bagging on camp ministry, I'm, uh, but that's a historic reality, right? So is this what we mean by revival? No. Uh, no, it's not what we mean. What we mean um, is the Christian life in greater abundance. We mean the ordinary work of the Spirit in extraordinary measure. So what's the ordinary work of the Spirit? Um, four things. Conviction of sin. That I'd be aware of the brokenness in my life, the brokenness in the world. Conversion. Where the Spirit would prick my heart so that I might go from not believing to believing. The giving of assurance, third, that I wouldn't, I wouldn't, as a follower of Jesus, spend my entire life wrestling with doubt over my salvation. And then fourth, sanctification or holiness, or, or that I would become like Christ, that my life would be more and more reformed and conformed to the image of God in Christ. And so when we talk about revival, we're not asking for God to do something that he doesn't normally do, right? We're not going to set up a tent in the parking lot and you know, like parachute JJN or something. Like we're, we're asking for the Spirit to do what the Spirit does. We're just asking him to do it in greater measure. And so uh, today, we're gonna lay a foundation that we're gonna build from over the next four weeks. We're gonna lay that foundation looking more broadly a bit at the life of Hannah, 
the prayer of Hannah, this seemingly insignificant woman, and then we're going to land the plane uh, with a revival prayer in the New Testament. All right? So here's the, here's the situation. Hannah shows up in the Old Testament at a time when Israel was essentially a spiritually dead people. So uh, it, it's at the, end of, at the end of Judges, which judges a book about the apostasy of Israel as they abandoned their God. Uh, I mean, 1 Samuel picks up where Judges left off, and it picks up with Hannah, this infertile woman. And so the situation is that this man named Elkanah has two wives. Hannah's one of them. We presume that the reason he had two wives is because Hannah was his first. She couldn't have a child, and so he went and got another. But Hannah pleads with the Lord, begs the Lord. She, she doesn't simply just accept her fate. She begs God for a son. And in verse 10, 1 verse 10, it says, she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. This, this woman looking at her life, looking at her life circumstances, looking at, at what's going on and the fact that she spent her life infertile, which is, that's, listen, infertility, struggle with fertility is a heartbreaking reality today. Uh, back then it was also a major social problem. And it says that she was deeply distressed. She wept bitterly. And if I can maybe throw in a quick little pause here, one of the biggest barriers to seeing God revive our hearts and to see that reviving of our hearts overflow in our neighbors is that as a young church, predominantly young church, not, not many of us have ever, have ever experienced what Hannah experienced here where we look at our life and we are just like weeping bitterly over it. And so for some, the starting place for begging God to revive our hearts is gonna go put me in Hannah's shoes. Let me, let me experience what it's like to be deeply distressed weeping bitterly. Verse 11, she vowed and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. This is a woman bawling like bawling her eyes out, sobbing, Lord, give me a son. Like, Lord, don't forget me. Like, Lord, don't, don't forget me. Like, don't forget, I, I will, if you give me a son, I will hand him back to you all the days of his life. And in the depth of her prayer, they thought that she was drunk. Verse 15, she says, no, no, I'm not. I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. I've poured my soul out before the Lord. Poured it out. And a few verses later, in response to her prayer, and her pouring her soul out to the Lord, in verse 19, the Lord remembered her. The Lord remembered her. And in due time, remember those words, we're gonna need it later. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. And so Hannah, this weeping, bitter woman, desperately crying out to God, oh Lord, give me a son, has a son. And now with child in tow, we hit chapter two where she prays. And the way that she begins her prayer and the way that she ends her prayer 
are particularly instructive for us. And so here's the way she begins it. And Hannah prayed and said, my heart exalts in the Lord. So this is the complete opposite of chapter one. The opposite of chapter one, it's, it, chapter one is not my heart exalts in the Lord. Chapter one is my heart is broken before the Lord. It's not exalting in anything. It's broken before the Lord. But this is a woman in her brokenness that the Lord has met and redeemed. And so now she's crying out, my heart exalts in the Lord. And she keeps going and says, my horn is exalted in the Lord. So what does she mean by my horn? Uh, this is not a trumpet, right? This is not, um, you, you know, I've got my, my tuba or something and I'm, I'm blaring out my Lord, my, my horn that's exalted. It's, this is an imagery of an animal. Well, this is a bit graphic, so if you don't do uh, whatever the TV channel is that does the, uh, what am I trying to think of? Na- there it is, National Geographic. If you don't do that, I don't do that either. Uh, but if you don't do that, this may or may not be graphic. But here, here was the imagery. The imagery was an animal that would have a horn in its front who would gore his enemy into submission. Just pound his enemy until the enemy was in submission. And then the, the, the animal would raise his horn in victory. I want to get raised. And she's saying, my my horn has been raised in victory. It's exalted in the Lord. I have my son. And she says, my mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. This is the heart bursting with joy, rejoicing what God has done for her. And this is sojourn. This is the posture of a revived heart. You want to know what a revived heart looks like? This is the posture of someone's heart that's been revived. My heart rejoices in the Lord, rejoices in my salvation, rejoices in what God has done for me. But there's something happening in these words behind the scenes. So let's keep going. Verse two, there's none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There's no rock like our God. This is obviously a statement of confidence in the holiness of God. But every commentator I read said there's more going on than this. That this language is a flashback to language from Exodus 15, which was the song of Moses. The song of Moses that that was sung right after um, Israel was delivered from Egypt. So Israel, the the people of God in the Old Testament are, are in the hands of Egypt and they're slaves. And they get delivered out of their slavery. And then verse 15, they burst out in song. But the way that chapter 14 ends, the song is in response to this. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. But the point is this, that this was reflection in her language. The language that, that Hannah used in her prayer was a flashback to language when there was no apostasy, when it wasn't a drifting people. It was a people who were aware and remembered that the, um, that, that the uh, redemption of the Lord, the Lord leading the people, leading Israel out of Egypt wasn't something that was a small dot in the rearview mirror. It was front page in the newspaper. It was right here. It just happened. And the, <coughs> the way one theologian connects these dots is like this. He says, when Hannah prayed, she had used language that reminded us of God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt. The words of her prayer helped us to see 
that her suffering was, in a sense, a representation of Israel's suffering. We began to see that Hannah's story stands at the beginning of 1 Samuel because there is a connection yet to be played out between Hannah's story and Israel's story. Point is this, that Hannah's story was about more than Hannah. Hannah's story was about Israel, which is what makes the way that she finished her prayer so fascinating. She finishes it like this in verse 10. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And so she finishes his prayer like like this. There's going to be a king. There's this king that's going to lead the people out of their apostasy back to Israel 15. And by Israel 15, I mean Exodus 15. I'm under the weather. That's the day cool talking right there. If I could say it this way, it's, it's there's going to be this king who's going to lead this revival in the hearts of his people. But here's what's interesting. I find it interesting. To date, there is no king in Israel. Like the narrative of the nation of Israel, there's not yet a king. And so she's praying that there would be this king, but there's never been a king. The first king comes eight chapters later. There's no king yet in the nation of Israel. So what is she praying for? Well, she pray, is she praying for this king? Well, here's the way that most commentators said it. They said it like this. By the end of the prayer, her prayer became prophecy. That she was now speaking as a prophet. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. You see the way that she described this anointed king? You see the way she described it? Like this. The exalted, that the Lord would exalt the what? The horn of the anointed. Now, Here's the problem. There was never a king in Israel who could raise his horn in victory over the spiritual condition of Israel. Like if we keep reading the Old Testament from 1 Samuel 1 on, we follow the narrative of Israel, here's what it looks like. It looks like faithful, unfaithful, faithful, unfaithful, faithful, unfaithful, faithful, unfaithful. There's never a king in Israel who can truly raise the horn in victory over Israel the spiritual condition of Israel. So was she just wrong? In this prayer, in this prophecy, was she simply wrong? And if not, when would the horn get raised? I'm glad you asked. 1 Corinthians 15. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Verse 42, so it is with those, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. And then 1544, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your Sting. You want to know when the horn would get raised in victory? It would get raised in the resurrection of Jesus. That's when the horn would get raised. That's when. There would be a day when there would be a king who would raise his horn in victory over all of the brokenness and the spiritual condition of the people of Israel, but it wouldn't happen until Jesus came out of the grave. You want to know the single greatest revival in human history? 
It's when the father took the son from death to life. When the father raised the son out of the grave. That is the single greatest resurrection in human history. And it's why. It's why when we get into the New Testament and we see these revival prayers, if you will, they never say this. They never give strategy. They never give a mechanism to bringing about the revival of God in the hearts of his people. Never happens. You're never going to see a fog machine. They didn't have fog machines back then. But, but you, whatever was first century parallel to the fog machine, you're never going to find it. You're never going to find, hey, <coughs> you, you need like special music and special preaching in the right setting. Get out in the wilderness. It's not going to happen. What you're going to have, you're, you're, what you're going to see is prayers that we would experience more of the presence of God in our life today. That's what we find. And so the way that I want to land the plane of this, um, this foundation, if you will, is with one of the, uh, what I think is one of the great revival prayers in the New Testament with Paul in Ephesians 3. Where he says, this is what it means, or at least he paints this picture, this is what it means to experience the revival of God in your own life. Ephesians 3, 14 to 19 For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. That's right back to Hannah. You want to know the posture of a revived heart? I bow my knees before the Father. (coughs) From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant to you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Here's what's interesting. Paul's writing to Christians. He's not writing to non-Christians. He's writing to people who, who follow Jesus and he's saying that, 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 that you may be granted strength in your inner being through the spirit, that you may have Christ dwell in your hearts, both of which already happen. Like, Christian, like, these things already happen. And then at the end of it, he, he says that, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. When you became a follower of Jesus, let me, let me tell you what happened to you. This is the, the narrative of your life if you're a follower of Christ. And if you're not, this can be the narrative of your life. When you went from not believing to believing, you, you, you had the spirit of God unite you to Christ. You, you, you have this shared union with Christ is what we call it. You've been united to him where you have the life of Christ in you. So in a real sense, you already have the fullness of God in you. <coughs> And Paul's prayer here is that you would be filled with the fullness of God. So what does it mean uh, for you to be filled with something that you already have? Let me, let me try to illustrate what I think Paul is describing here. Imagine with me you're at a park. Uh, we can pick any park in the neighborhood. We're going to call it the one right over here with the basketball court. Um, we're at the park, uh, and, and you, you see this father and son on the sidewalk, walking down the sidewalk of this park, and, and all of a sudden this Father, he leans down, he grabs his son, he picks his son up, and he holds his son close. Holds him close to him. 
kisses him on the cheek, tells him, hey, I, I love you, son. I love being your daddy. And then he puts his son down, and the son runs off, and he starts playing. While that son is playing, he is no less his son than he was when the father was holding him close. But when the father was holding him close, he was, he was getting a unique experience of his sonship. He was getting an intimate experience of his sonship in that moment. To be filled with the fullness of God, I think it means to experience that unique sonship, that daughtership that you have, to experience the closeness of the Father, to experience the Father pulling you close. That's what it looks like to experience a revived heart, is to have the Father pull you in close. And when the Father does this, when the Father pulls a community close, not just you, but us, we we may get to experience that kind of revived communal heart we're gonna beg God for. And when God does that, when he pulls a community close, let me tell you what happens. You ready? One, nominal Christians get converted. Nominal Christians get converted. And the language there is on purpose. So a nominal Christian is this, somebody actively engaged in the church, living life, you're here on Sundays, you're in a parish, two, three, we don't know, but you're in, like you're in one, but you've never responded to Christ in repentance and faith. You've never actually responded to the grace of God in repentance and faith. You're actively involved in religious activity, but you've never given your heart to Christ. And so what does that look like? How do I know if that's me, Brandon? How do I know? How do I know if that's me? Great question. Uh, there is no foolproof answer, but I'm gonna give you a couple of things that maybe help give you a filter. Uh, one, uh, is sex outside of marriage, is it just no big deal? Like, is it just no big deal? Is it just, man, this is just the way it is. Like, it's the way that it is. Like, I, man, the Lord gave me these desires. Like, this, this is just, it's more of an animal instinct, nothing I can do about it, no big deal. Is your addiction to pornography the same? Is it no big deal? I'm not asking, do you struggle with porn? I'm asking, is your struggle with porn just no big deal? If it is, you should be frightened. Is greed just the way the world works? Like, it's not greed, it's the ladder. I've got to get up the ladder. I've sold my soul to the ladder. But God gave me these talents, why would I waste them? Is that how you justify the incessant need for more that you have? Jesus said you can't serve two masters. Money's one of them you can't serve. Nominal Christians get converted. Converted's in there because there's no such thing as a nominal Christian. Second, sleepy Christians wake up. Some of us, it's not that we're nominal, it's that, man, just our faith is on autopilot and it's functionally asleep in our life. Sleepy Christians wake up. And third, hard to reach people. People far from God get brought close, <coughs> get dramatically brought to faith. To be honest, this is people like myself. This is people like me who, um, and maybe you're here and uh, you're wondering like, do I belong, do I not belong? Is this like, this is not really for me. And when I was 22, I was uninterested in anything Jesus had to offer. I went to church on a Sunday morning like this because I was trying to figure out which girl wasn't the church girl. That's the truth. 
and Jesus radically intervened in my life. I was one who was far, who dramatically got converted. It can happen to you too. But he keeps going. This is what makes the ending of his prayer uh, so pertinent. Now, verse 20, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we are, than all, I'm gonna start over. We're gonna pick that back up. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask of him. I think this is um, a starting point for some of us. Some of us need to repent of not believing that God can actually do what God says he can do. Like we, we some of us look at our life, we look at the brokenness within our life, we, we look at um, family members, friends, and we think, man, no way God can heal me, no way God can reach them. They are too far gone and I'm too broken. And some of us here need to start by repenting for believing that. Let's keep going. According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. I wanted to finish with the ending of his prayer because let me tell you what we're not asking for. We're not asking simply for God to revive our hearts and for that reviving of our hearts to flow in our neighbors. We are definitely asking for that. But we are asking and praying and pleading and begging God for a generational movement of the gospel. One that extends long beyond our lifetime. Like we're, we're asking and praying that maybe our kids and our kids' kids and our kids' kids might get to experience a lasting, revived heart in a redeemed neighborhood, a redeemed city. Like we're asking, like, what, what if, what if like revival actually broke out, but it broke out in Sojourn Kids? And I don't, I don't mean like three-year-olds speaking in tongues. They basically do that anyway, pretty much. But like, what if 20 years from now, our kids say, man, something miraculous has happened and we can't explain it. And all they know to do is to point back to this little window of time 20 years ago where we cried and we prayed and we pleaded, oh God. Like what? Like what if? Like what if? Like, what if some of you in this room so begged God to revive your heart and to see that reviving of your heart overflow into the people around you that six years from now when you relocate yourself back to where your family came from or where your family is or where you get a job somewhere else in Chicago or Kansas City or Zimbabwe, I have no idea. What, what, what if... What if there's this day where all of a sudden God just shows up and he, he just starts reviving the lives of people all around you and you can't explain what happened except all you can do is trace back to this day where you actually bought into praying and pleading that God was powerful enough to revive your heart and revive the hearts of the lives around you. Like what if you actually so committed that we got to see that one day? What if? Is it not worth begging God for? Like what? Like what if that marriage that you're in is so left turning right now and spiraling that, that God intervenes and restores and redeems it and then you got to watch generation after generation of faithfulness in your children? This is what we're after. 
And so what's our foundation? What's our foundation? Our foundation is this. Let's take the posture of Hannah and pursue the prayer of Paul. And what do we do? What's our first step? What do we... Um, what do I do from here? One, you, you don't forget this sermon when you go to lunch. Let's start with that. And then two, let's come together Friday night and let's cry out to the God of the heavens to do what the God of the heavens does just in extraordinary measure to the degree that we might see a generational movement Let's come together and beg God to convert nominal Christians, to wake up sleepy ones, and to bring people who are far from God radically close. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, we are, we are aware that what we're asking for is nothing that a tent or a fog machine can bring about. We are aware that there's no preacher who can bring it about, that there's no activity we can do to bring it about, we, that there's no formula in our prayer to bring it about, but all we can do is hit our knees like Hannah, posture ourselves crying out, oh God, oh God, remember me, revive me, redeem me, and then rejoice in the salvation that we've been given. And then we can beg for Paul's prayer, we can pursue this prayer. Give us, fill us with the fullness of what we already have. That we might see a generational movement of the gospel. That we might actually have grandkids whose lives are different because of the prayer we pray right now. We know this is the work of the Spirit. We can't do it, and so we're asking you to, in Christ's name. Amen.